G'day and welcome to Is It Relevant Today? Right here on Faith FM. I'm Marius Jigao and on this show we're examining biblical concepts and ideas and asking ourselves the important question, is it relevant today? Or is it as outdated and ridiculous as bench seats in cars? Today we're going to look at the topic of creation and evolution. I became fascinated with this subject when I began to study a PhD at Monash University where I was trying to understand the proteins that initiate contraction during labor. One thing I noticed as I started my studies at Monash University is that most people there don't believe in creation. Most of the people in the physiology department believed in evolution. And when I noticed this, I decided to really look into the topic. I wanted to see, does the evidence stand on the side of evolution? Or does the evidence stand more on the side of creation? And I literally looked into this for hundreds of hours. The point of the show today is not so much to try to convince one to switch their view of origins as much as it is to show that there is another side of the coin. Evolution is often taught as fact, and one is considered either uneducated or stupid if they believe anything else. The reason I studied this topic so much is that I foresaw that one day I will be discussing it with my PhD colleagues at uni and wanted to see where the evidence actually lays. Now sure enough, this discussion came up one day as I was having dinner in the physiology building around 6pm. Now, many of us often went there, and we would chat over dinner and so forth. And this night, there were two girls in the room. One of them was of the Hindu faith, and one of them was a Buddhist. And we started talking about the various things that we believe. The Hindu girl was talking about how she doesn't eat beef because she believes that cows are gods. And we started talking about the various things each of us believe. And as this discussion progressed, a number of other people entered the room. And about 15 minutes later, there were nine other people in the room besides myself. And we started discussing the various things that we believed. I remember that one of them was an atheist, two of them were agnostics, one person was of the Islamic faith, there was another Christian there besides myself, and the two young ladies which I mentioned before were Hindu and Buddhist. There was a really good spread of various belief systems. At one point, the topic went to evolution. And at that time I said, I don't believe in evolution. Now, the room went silent. You could literally hear a pin drop. Everyone started looking straight at me. I almost expected them to say, heretic, burn him. But they said, how can you not believe in evolution? What about all the proof there is? And I said, look, I've looked into this matter. I've really been researching this for the past few months, and I've yet to find this proof, but maybe I've missed it. Why don't you guys tell me, what the proof is. And then, if it's there, I'll believe it. And we spent the next three hours talking about this. During this time, my colleagues realized that the proof that they thought was there wasn't actually there or they didn't have it to show me. Two of them, as they left, said to me, Marius, we know that we haven't shown you the proof, but we're going to find it and we're going to bring it to you. And I said, yeah, that's great. I'll be happy to look at it and adjust my beliefs if the evidence is there. I left the room up on my high horse and went straight up to my professor. My professor's name was Helena Parkington. She is a leading researcher in her field. In fact, only one other person in the world does the kinds of experiments she does. She's a brilliant lady. And I went up to her and I said, Helena, you can't prove evolution. 
Now, in the scientific community, this is like grabbing a rubber glove and whacking someone on the back of the head. And she looked at me and said, something really interesting. She turned and looked at me and said, I know, you can't prove creation. I learned something very interesting that day. I learned that people on the lower end of the educational food chain, the undergraduates, the postgraduates, the honours students, the PhD students, they all believe that evolution is a fact and that it can be proven. However, the people that are teaching this, the people at the top end of the educational food chain, they know that evolution can't be proven. However, they teach it as fact. Stay with us after these songs and we'll look into this evidence and what it can and can't prove. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands My name is written on his heart I know that while in heaven he stands No tongue can bid me thence depart When Satan tempts me to despair Tells me of my guilt within Upward I look and see him there Who made an end of all my sin Because the sinless Savior died My sinful soul is counted free For God the just is satisfied To look on Him and pardon me Behold Him there, the risen Lamb My perfect, spotless righteousness The great unchangeable I am The King of glory and of grace One with Himself I cannot die My soul is purchased by His blood My life is hid with Christ on high With Christ my Savior and my With Christ my Savior and my God. Welcome back to Is It Relevant Today? I'm Marius Jigao and today we'll be looking at the topic of creation versus evolution. Now many of us know that Charles Darwin came up with the theory of evolution. But how he came up with it is not so well known. Ironically, the way he came up with this theory was actually because of his religious beliefs. You see, Darwin believed that God created immutable species incapable of variation. What this would mean would be that God created finches with beaks that cannot adapt according to the environment they find themselves in. 
Now, this was a commonly believed and accepted idea in the religious world at the time. And Darwin had this belief. And when he went to the Galapagos Islands, he saw these finches which clearly had adapted their beaks to their environment. Now, when he saw this, he had two options. The first option was to say, oh, maybe God didn't create immutable species. Maybe he created species capable of variation. The other option, which was the one he chose, was to say, well, God didn't create species incapable of variation. Maybe God didn't create at all. Now, one of the things I'm personally convinced is that the theory of evolution came about because of the way they understood the cell at the time. You see, the cell at the time was believed to consist of what they referred to as homogeneous protoplasm, which simply means undifferentiated goo. They thought that the cell is an extremely simple unit. It's just made of some goo that's all pretty similar. Now, this belief allowed Darwin to say, okay, if it's this simple, it may have just come around by itself and arranged itself into life. However, our understanding of the cell today is vastly different from the understanding of the cell they had at the time. What we know today is that most cells consist of over a 100,000 different types of proteins. That's not a 100,000 different proteins, but a 100,000 different types of proteins and numerous expressions of each of these proteins, some of them in their hundreds of thousands. Now, I'm convinced that if Darwin had the understanding of the cell that we do today, he would have never come up with this theory. So let's have a brief look at what would be involved in the evolution of life. You would need to first evolve a cell, or what we're told is you would need to evolve a simple cell. But don't be deceived. There's no such thing as a simple cell. Yes, bacteria have less proteins in them than a, let's say, a human cell, but even bacteria are highly complex cells. They consist of over 4,000 different types of proteins, all of them arranged in highly specific ways, many of them expressed in the thousands and hundreds of thousands of times. Now, what would be needed for this cell to come around by itself is for the proteins to have been able to assemble themselves. So, how could this happen? You see, proteins are made up of 20 amino acids. Now, in the world today, we don't just find 20 different types of amino acids. We find a little over 270. And only 20 of them are used to make up life. Now, what would be involved in assembling a small protein by itself? Well, you would need to have these amino acids assemble themselves in exactly the correct order. Now, the first problem that you're going to run into is that amino acids don't just assemble themselves. You need a protein to assemble the amino acids into another protein. So you have the chicken and the egg problem. What came first, the protein or the protein that assembled the protein? The other problem is that once it's assembled, you need another protein to fold it into the correct configuration. Otherwise, it won't function. But let's ignore all this for a second. Let's say that they can self-assemble, which they can't, but let's say they can. What's the likelihood that they can self-arrange if there are just these 20 amino acids 
around at the time. Now, let's not forget there's over 270 of them around today, but let's just say that there was just these 20. I've done the maths for this and I've discovered that for a small protein, a protein of 150 amino acids, now, your average protein, let's say of a yeast cell, is approximately 464 amino acids. But this is a small protein. Now, the likelihood of this small 150 amino acid protein to come around by itself is 1 in 1 times 10 to the 164th. That's 1 with 164 zeros after it. Now, this number is so mind-bogglingly big that we just can't comprehend it. So, I'm going to give you an example. This may help you understand just how unlikely this is. It's believed that in the known universe, there is 1 times 10 to the 80 atoms altogether. So the likelihood of this protein coming together by itself is like me saying, I have marked two atoms somewhere in the universe. What you need to do is to find them sequentially without any mistakes. So what you'd need to do is you'd need to get into your spaceship Travel to one of a 100,000 million galaxies. Now, don't forget, you have to choose the right one. And from there, you'd need to travel to one of 200,000 million solar systems. And again, you need to choose the correct one. Go to the correct planet, to the correct side of the planet. Pick the correct beach and pick up the correct grain of sand. And in this grain of sand is one million billion billion atoms. That's one with 24 zeros after it. And there, you would need to choose the correct atom. Once you've done this, well, you need to do it again. And you can't make any mistakes. This is absolutely impossible. However, there is a gentleman called George Wald who gave us an interesting statement. He said, Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible and the possible becomes probable, and the probable becomes virtually certain. One only has to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. Now this is an interesting statement, which we'll explore just after this song. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea
Welcome back to Is It Relevant Today? Right here on Faith FM. I'm Marius Jigao and today we're looking at creation versus evolution. And we've just discovered that the probability for the self-arrangement of a small protein is 1 in 1 times 10 to the power of 164. That's 1 with 164 zeros after it. We've discovered that the likelihood for this to occur would be the same as marking two atoms in the universe and asking someone to find them consecutively without making any mistakes. However, as we mentioned, George Wilde gave us an interesting statement. He says that given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible becomes probable, and the probable becomes virtually certain. One only has to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. Now, I remember when reading this, I was like, wow, that sounds probable. I mean, that that sounds like a good statement. It sounds kind of believable. What he's essentially saying is that if you flip a coin enough times, you will eventually get 20 heads in a row. However, what most people don't do is they don't sit down and do the maths. Now, I love maths. And for the next couple of minutes or so, we're going to do some maths. If you don't like maths, I promise it'll be quick and painless. What we're going to have a look is the likelihood that this protein will come around given the time we have. And what you would need to work out is you'd need to look at the number of atoms that are involved in the process. Then you would need to multiply this by the reaction speed, and then you would need to multiply that by the time that you have. So let's have a look. Which atoms would be involved in this evolutionary process? Well, it would be the atoms on the immediate surface of the Earth in the places where the conditions are favorable. But what we want to do is give them the benefit of the doubt. So we're not going to say just these atoms. We're also not going to say just the atoms at the surface of the Earth. We're going to say every single atom in the universe, just to make sure that they have the benefit of the doubt. Now, looking at reaction speed, we're going to look at a reaction speed much faster than is commonly observed. And the time that we're going to have a look at, it's not just... 18.6 billion years. We're going to look at a time 100,000 times more than what's believed that the universe has been around for. Just to make sure that at every angle, they have the benefit of the doubt. Now, if you'd like to see the exact calculations of this equation, have a look on our YouTube channel called Is It Relevant Today? And click on the No God Delusion. The likelihood of this happening still leaves 50 zeros unaccounted for. Modern mathematics tell us today that anything that has a probability of 1 in 10 times to the 50 is impossible. Now, I realize that some may have struggled to follow that, so I'm going to make it easier. Essentially, what these equations are telling us is that even if all the atoms in the universe were trying to self-arrange to make this protein, which they by no means were, at a rate much faster than commonly observed, for a time over a 100,000 times more than what is believed to have existed, even if all these conditions were met, it's still absolutely impossible. And this is for one single small protein. If you did, by some miracle, get this small protein to arrange, now, don't be deceived, you would need a miracle of God to get it to happen. But if you did get it, you still need the other 
3,999 different types of proteins, all assembled in the correct way. Life evolving from non-life is not possible, and there are many prominent professors and scientists who are also coming to this conclusion. So what about the evolution of species? Is it possible that species could evolve if life had evolved? Now, we've just realized that the simple building blocks of life cannot come about by themselves, but we're going to ignore that for a second, and let's say that they did. Can a species evolve? The thing that science has been looking for, essentially since Charlie came up with his idea, was the links between various species. And the big one that they look for is a link between humans and apes. Have they found any? We'll find out just after this song.
Welcome back to Is It Relevant Today? You're listening to Marius Jigau, and so far we've discovered that even if we had a hundred thousand times more time than we are told that existed, and even if all the atoms in the universe were involved in trying to arrange the amino acids of a protein faster at a rate than's commonly observed, it's still impossible by common mathematical standards for this to come around. But we're going to put this aside for a moment and suppose that it did happen. Darwin stated that we would expect numerous intermediate links to be found. So let's have a look at what has been proposed up until now. One such link was proposed in 1922. It was named Nebraska Man. The elusive missing link was declared to be found. Images of primitive-looking humans were depicted, stating that the missing link has been found. However, what they found was one tooth. That's it. One single tooth. From this, they concluded that the missing link was found. Interestingly enough, it was later discovered that this tooth was, in fact, a pig's tooth. Another one that's very well known was Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man was discovered by Charles Dawson. And essentially, what Charles did is he got an ape mandible. He filed it down and he articulated it with the human cranium and said, this is the missing link. And for 41 years, this was accepted as the missing link until it was finally discovered that it was a forgery. Think about this. For 41 years, people believed that there was a missing link and their minds were shaped according to this information when in fact this missing link was not there at all. Even when it was discovered to be a forgery, it continued persisting in the textbooks for many years. Another one that we still have in our textbooks today is Neanderthal Man. Neanderthal Man is suggested to be the missing link. Now, the thing that makes Neanderthal Man different from any other modern skeleton is the fact that it has a pronounced supraorbital ridge, which means that the area just above the eye is more pronounced than we commonly see in human skulls. Now, I have a real human skull at home that I purchased when I was studying anatomy, and I noticed that its supraorbital ridge is not all that pronounced. We're told that a pronounced supraorbital ridge is somehow a primitive characteristic. However, a quick internet search of skulls from various races will show that some have more pronounced and some have less pronounced supraorbital ridges. You'll actually find out that there are a number of modern races which we currently have alive in the world today that have more pronounced supraorbital ridges even than Neanderthal man. Now you'll see that different skulls look slightly different. Some are more robust, others are smaller. What I believe is that Neanderthal man was simply a race of humans that's no longer around. They may have been wiped out, maybe because of war, maybe because of some catastrophe, or maybe some disease or plague, and they're simply not around with us anymore. However, one of the most often debated so-called missing links today is Lucy. We are told that Lucy is the missing link. Now, the images that you commonly see is of Lucy standing upright often holding a child, commonly portrayed with another possible partner, also standing upright. And looking at the images that we have today, you'd think that they must have found some amazing groups of skeletons that they can recreate these images. But 
this isn't the case. What they found was the skeleton of an ape. Lucy was an Australopithecus afarensis, which is a fancy way of saying she was an ape. She was about three feet or just under a meter tall, and we're told that she walked upright. Now, what made her walk upright? We'll find out just after this song.
Welcome back to Is It Relevant Today? Right here on Faith FM. I'm Marius Jigau and today we've been looking at creation versus evolution. What we've been focusing on today is the inconsistencies in the evolutionary model. We've seen that the likelihood of arranging one small protein is equivalent to marking two random atoms somewhere in the universe and hoping to find them by chance sequentially. We're now looking at Darwin's suggestion that if his hypothesis was right, you would expect numerous missing links to be discovered and realize that these missing links are still missing. And the ones which have been suggested have often turned out to be forgeries, different species entirely, or just races of modern humans that are no longer around. We're now looking at the famous Australopithecus afarensis named Lucy. And we're asking ourselves, what made this ape different from any other apes? We're directed to her hip bone. And we're told, you see, this hip bone is different. It suggests that she walked upright. However, the hip bone that we're often pointed to doesn't actually suggest she walked upright. But they say, no, 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 if it was twisted, she may have walked upright. And I'll give them that. It's true. If it was twisted, then she may have walked upright. But we have no way of knowing that it was twisted because there's no other hip bone on the other side that was discovered to compare it to. So all we have is the hip bone of an ape which is the same as all the other hip bones of apes that we've found so far. But what they tell us is that what made Lucy walk upright was the articulation between the femur and the tibia. The knee joint there shows that Lucy walked upright. And the truth is that the knee joint does appear to suggest that Lucy walked upright. However, there's something that's strangely missing from the vast majority of textbooks. There's something that Donald Johansson, who was the discoverer of Lucy, didn't actually tell anyone until about eight years later when he was confronted at a conference by a creationist. The femur of this skeleton, which is the only thing that makes this skeleton different from any other ape, was not found with the rest of the skeleton. In fact, it was found in a different dig site, over 2.3 kilometers away, 70 meters deeper in the strata. So what makes one think that this femur belonged to this skeleton? I believe that Lucy's skeleton was in one place, and this femur belongs to the skeleton that it was found with, and to the other bones with which it was found. What should be of serious concern to any discerning scientist is that this information is strangely absent from textbooks today. We're simply not told this. We're not told that, oh yes, it does look different, but this bone was found in a different dig site. They don't tell us these things, which makes one ask the question, why? If you're genuinely looking for scientific truth, then why not give us all the facts and allow each individual to come up with their own conclusions? Why leave out this very important fact altogether? In fact, we're often fed misleading information. I was looking at a presentation not long ago from the California Academy of Sciences. It's an animation of a chimpanzee, an ape, they've named Lucy, and a human. And it shows all these three things moving together. And what they're trying to show is that Lucy has things in common with the chimpanzee and also with the human. Now, if you look at this animation, which you can find with a simple internet search, 
you'll notice that they have put a box around the feet. The thing that makes Lucy similar to the human is the box around the feet, showing that the feet of Lucy are the same as the feet of the human. You see, the chimpanzee has opposable thumbs or toes, and they show that Lucy has the same feet that a human has, which suggests that she's the missing link. However, when you look at the skeleton that was discovered, when you look at Lucy's feet, you realize that there weren't any feet found with this skeleton. So why does the California Academy of Sciences deliberately deceive us by showing that she has feet similar to humans when there were no feet found at all? And this is not uncommon. If you would go to the St. Louis Zoo in Missouri, they've made a statue of Lucy and they've given her human feet. And one of the local science professors wrote in and said, this statue's feet is simply wrong. It misleads the public. Now, what would you expect the zoo to do? You would expect them to say, oh, um, we didn't realize we made a mistake. We're going to fix it. Or at least we're going to put a label on it to show that, hey, this isn't according to what was found. But this is what the zoo said in response. They said, we can't be updating every exhibit based on every new piece of evidence. We look at the overall exhibit and the impression it creates. We think that the overall impression this exhibit creates is correct. What they're in fact saying is, we can't look at the evidence. Forget about the evidence. We're interested in the impression. We're not interested in the facts that we found. We're interested in the impression we're trying to create in your mind, in what we want you to believe. That's more important to us than the facts. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that the missing link is still missing. And Charlie had a problem with this. He actually wrote about this in his book. He noticed that there weren't these missing links that he was expecting to see. And he writes, and I quote, Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chains. And this is perhaps the most obvious and grievous objection which can be urged against my theory. You see, Charles Darwin said, I'm expecting to find all these missing links, but I can't find them. And the fact that they're not around is a serious problem. He did hope that they would eventually be found, but it's now over 150 years later, and they're still not there. Now, today we've looked at a few of the many serious problems with the evolutionary model. But what I find is that those who believe in creation, when they discuss this, they just focus on the evidence against evolution, which is what we've done today. But I don't want to do only this. So please join us next week at the same time, and we'll actually look at the evidence that supports the biblical creation account. We thank you for listening today, and don't forget to visit our YouTube channel called Is It Relevant Today, where we have video presentations on many topics, including the one we've just been talking about called The No God Delusion. We look forward to seeing you next week. I'm Marius Chigau. God bless, and I hope you have a magnificent day. Give
I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Interposed His precious blood Oh, that day when freed from sinning I shall see Thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace Come, my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransomed soul away Send Thine angels now to carry Me to realms of endless day Thy goodness like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to Thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for Thy courts above Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for Thy courts above You've been listening to is it relevant today? If you have any questions or comments, please leave them on our Facebook page, Is It Relevant Today? But for now, thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next week. I love to tell the story T'will be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and His love